Any political news this week, Hagen, or should we skip this podcast and just wait till next week? Oh, Chris, it's an endless fire hose of political news, and this week was no different. We got a lot to talk about. Let's get to it. First, quick reminder, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. You can contact Hagen via Political Wire. You can email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Let's get on with business. Tegan, what in the heck happened on CNN on Wednesday night? Did you watch that train wreck, Chris? I mean, there are very few train wrecks that I don't stop and take a look at. Of course, I watch it, which, as I said to you going into that evening when you told me that you were going to watch it, objectively, that does make me and you bad people. You are a bad person, but I am too. Yes, I watched it. Tell us what happened. Well, we knew it was going to be bad, right? I mean, we we even talked about this on a podcast about how this could not be a good thing for CNN. And you know something, Chris, after watching it, it was worse than I think either of us could have imagined. And that was what was incredible. It was like, how can we all have known what was coming and yet still have been so shocked? And also, you know, the interesting thing is that Caitlin Collins, who is moderating, she is a good moderator. She was no match for Donald Trump. He just rolled right over her. It was a fire hose of lies coming out of his mouth. There was nothing she could do to fact check it quickly enough. And then the worst thing about the entire event was this audience that would just clap and cheer at Trump's antics. And it just created the worst environment possible for something like this. It was really an in-kind contribution to the Trump campaign from CNN in the end. I mean, what a mess. In-kind contribution to the Trump campaign or to the Biden campaign? (laughs) That's a very good point, actually. From Politico, reports were that the Biden team was positively giddy, is what they said about this because of some of the statements that Trump made and the fact that he's on video making them. These are the types of things that will quickly become campaign ads for President Biden. But at the same time, Chris, the Trump team thought he killed it. They were very happy with the way it was. He took it to CNN, which is, you know, for the last eight years has been public enemy number one in Donald Trump's eyes. He managed to get on air and then he just rolled right over Caitlin Collins. I felt bad for her. Let's go through some winners and losers. I don't know if there were any winners from that town hall, but let's go through them. And of course, like any question, I'm asking you purely as a vehicle so we can get to my own points of view. Let's start with you. Were there any winners and how would you rate the winners and losers from the town hall? It depends on perspective. The Biden team thought they were winners because Donald Trump made himself more unelectable. The Trump team thought they did well because they rolled over CNN and Donald Trump's focus right now is on winning the Republican primary. And honestly, it's hard to see any of these other candidates who are potentially running against him in a primary or who have already announced. It's hard to see any of them actually do any better than Caitlin Collins did. The man is good at this in terms of the way that he's defined it. I mean, it's disgusting and it's terrible and he just lies, 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 but you can't stop him. I forget which one of us sent the Rick Wilson tweet to the other, but to your point about the other Republican candidates, one of Wilson's tweets was, also, this guy will tear off Ron DeSantis's head on stage, kick it around like a soccer ball, dance with his headless corpse and poop down his neck. Dear God. It really was. I mean, if I'm Ron DeSantis watching this, I rethink my plans about running, maybe put that money back in the bank and wait four years because I find anybody who's going to be on stage with this guy, you're going to have to beat him off stage. I don't see how a Republican candidate is going to be able to get on a debate stage with Donald Trump and do well. 
Donald Trump had talked about skipping the first one or two debates of the Republican primary, you know, mainly because it was going to be held at the Reagan Library or the other one was going to be held on Fox News. And these were associations that Trump didn't want. But the reality is maybe Trump does actually want to be on those stages. I think, you know, he's probably energized after what happened last night. So was the biggest loser CNN? I think the biggest loser were the people like you and me who actually spent time watching it. I mean, that's 70 minutes of time that we're never going to get back, Chris. Yeah, but we were losers going into it. Once you make the decision that you're going to watch it, definitionally, you're a loser. But sincerely, did CNN benefit in any way? I mean, even the ratings, the 3.1 million, I know we were talking about this before starting this conversation, huge number for CNN, still less than what Tucker Carlson used to get on his Fox show. If I didn't do what I do for a living, I probably would have tuned out after 10 or 15 minutes too. It was hard to watch. So the fact that you had 3.1 million people watching this is kind of amazing in a way. Terrible TV. Well, uh, it was good TV. It's brutal to say. I don't feel good saying it. I mean, you started by asking, you know, did I watch the train wreck? I mean, unfortunately, it's good TV. I think it's bad for their brand. Their desire to try to move more towards the middle, to try to be less predictable, let's just say. Okay, I can understand that. Maybe people disagree, agree with it. I can understand that. That's a strategy, and I can understand some logic behind it. At the core of that, though, means delivering credible news, credible information, and credibility. And there was not credible information delivered. Now, I know that CNN is arguing, well, that was the point, or that's one of the points. You got to see the reality. We, CNN, delivered that, and that's a value. I think there are all sorts of ways to deliver that without turning over your network. And I think that they hurt their brand. I came away feeling that Trump, in some ways, has gone from being his own best spokesperson to his own worst spokesperson. It reminds me of when he announced that he was going to run for president, whenever that was, two, three, four months ago. That speech, and it was just angry, and it was all about him, and it was about retribution. Everything from January 6th to the way he's now defending Access Hollywood, the tape, and his comments about Eugene Carroll, calling Caitlin Collins nasty. Even, I would say, saying that he would take the position that the U.S. should default, that if Democrats don't cave to the Republicans' demands or whatever it was that he said, that we should go ahead and default on our debt. I feel like he's gone from his own best spokesperson to his own worst spokesperson. Again, it's kind of, it depends upon where you sit. I think Team Trump thinks that they did extremely well because he was speaking directly to his base. He clearly wasn't speaking to the broader country. He wasn't speaking to the majority of the country, absolutely. But I think Republicans, and certainly the Republicans in that audience, thought that he was speaking to them. I mean, their reaction, he couldn't have programmed it better. Is he a good spokesman or not? I think he is towards his supporters. I think they lap it up. They love what he's doing. The broader public is not convinced, which is why Team Biden was happy with the performance. They thought they've got a lot of material for ads. If you literally just go through some of the things he said, whether it was taking credit for repealing Roe v. Wade, when you've got 60, 70% of Americans who support abortion rights, I mean, that's like gold for Democrats. You mentioned the fact that he is urging Republican lawmakers to have the U.S. default on its debt. 58%, according to a Washington Post ABC poll, said that that would be irresponsible. This idea that he said that he would pardon a large portion of the January 6th rioters at the Capitol, nearly 70% of Americans in a recent poll think that's a terrible idea. Americans are not where Donald Trump was. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right, Chris. He's a terrible spokesman because he's not appealing to the majority anymore. But I don't think that's what Trump was doing at this town hall. 
It's an excellent point. I just don't see how he's speaking beyond, at this point, that 30% or whatever the always Trumpers are. And maybe he needs to solidify that base. Maybe that's enough to get him a Republican nomination. But I just feel like he has gotten into his own where appealing to that 50% plus one vote feels hard to me. And I know we want to talk about that, but there's one other group that had a bad night last night. What happened to New Hampshire? (laughs) It was something. I mean, listening to that crowd and listening to the things that they laughed about. Now, granted, this was really an audience screened to be Republican primary voters, okay? People who anticipate voting in the Republican presidential primary. Now, that includes registered Republicans. It includes some independents as well who can vote in that primary. But the things that that they laughed at, the things that they joked at, laughing at the fact that Donald Trump mocking the woman who he just was found liable for sexual abuse. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. Live free or die, fine, but you don't have to be jerks about it. Yeah, it wasn't exactly you know a good tourist ad for the state of New Hampshire. For a beautiful, excellent state that I love visiting, that was horrendous. I want to pick up on what you were saying a moment ago, going through the different areas where Trump took positions very different from where the majority of Americans are. And one of the big questions as we think about 2024, how does any of this play in the suburbs? It's an incredibly important question, right? Whatever the swing voters are, and and for the last few elections, we've determined that they are these educated voters in the suburbs, mainly whites educated and in the suburbs. Which way are they going to go? These are typically Republican voters. They have been at least through most elections in our lifetimes. And it seems that with Donald Trump, they're not comfortable with the guy. So did he help himself with those swing voters? I think he hurt himself terribly. One Biden aide was quoted by Politico saying it was quite efficient. Weeks worth of damning content in one hour. And literally within hours after the town hall ended, they had already put up an ad or a video on Twitter with some of the things that Trump said. So we will see a lot of this town hall again. So if you missed it, listeners, because you couldn't bear to watch it, you're going to be seeing it in campaign ads soon. Going even more broadly than just the town hall, is it an oversimplification to say that 2024 very well might be the battle for the suburbs? Well, I think that's what we've been saying since the 2018 midterms. That's certainly what seemed to have happened. That's why the Democrats rode a wave where Donald Trump had offended too many people in those suburban areas. Those areas swung back to Democrats in 2018. Joe Biden took advantage of that again in 2020. 2022, we saw the same thing. So if those areas do trend blue again, trend towards Joe Biden, then I think the Democrats will win the presidency again. And of course, they'll pick up a lot of congressional seats in these areas too. But we will see. I mean, we don't know who the candidates are right now. We know that Biden's running and we know that Trump is far and away the front runner. If you believe Rick Wilson, Ron DeSantis doesn't have a chance against Trump, but we'll see. Well, that was very politely put by you because I just asked if it was an oversimplification and pretty much your answer was, where have you been? That's been what every election has been for the last six years. And you didn't come out and say it. You are a good friend. Thank you. That was a very polite way. I'm glad you noticed that, Chris. I I did. I did. Happy happy birthday. It's not your birthday, is it? Uh, No, it's not, but I'll, I'll take it. But here's what you didn't mention. You didn't mention abortion and you didn't mention immigration. 
as we're having this conversation right now, we are only hours away from the end of Title 42. I assume you've seen some of the video today, migrants massing on the borders, waiting to rush in some of the Fox News headlines today. Abortion versus immigration. How does that work out in the suburbs? That's a really interesting way to look at it. I think there are a couple other issues in there, like the economy and inflation and stuff like that. But that's a really interesting way to look at it, Chris. Abortion, I think Republicans have boxed themselves in at this point. And I think that state legislatures around the country are only further boxing the Republican Party in. Donald Trump boxed them in even further, taking credit for repealing Roe v. Wade on video. So I think Republicans are pretty much as a party are seen as opposing abortion rights, sometimes in a very extreme way. And that's an issue that really, really hurts them among women, but also among a lot of these swing voters you know, across the country, particularly in the suburbs. Immigration is a different story. Immigration, it's like the infrastructure issue in some ways, but more complicated. Infrastructure has been a big issue in this country for 20, 30 years, and it took decades for Congress to pass a bill to fund our infrastructure. It only just happened, you know, during the first year of Biden's term. And the reason it's a tough issue is that in a very polarized country, you need 60 votes to actually get this bill through. So it needed to be bipartisan. They needed to have Republican senators on board in order to get that 60 votes to bypass a filibuster in the Senate. Immigration is the exact same situation. So even though as we record this, the House has passed its immigration bill, H.R. 2, I believe is the number, that bill is dead on arrival in the U.S. Senate, and not just because you're not going to get Democrats on board, but because you can't get to 60 votes. And so this issue, this immigration issue, everyone agrees there's a problem. Everyone agrees that immigration in this country needs to be reformed, and they just can't get to the number of votes that they need in the U.S. Senate to get anything done. So it's a very, very tough issue. And will it hurt the suburbs? You read the headlines, and it seems like every single day, there's a new way that immigration is impacting people's views in the suburbs. I understand that Title 42 was a COVID health-related rule that was put into place, and so it is expiring just as many of the COVID rules and uh, situations are expiring. And so Biden and the Biden administration can't rely on it anymore as a way to help try to manage illegal immigration at the border. At the same time, is it not political malpractice? I mean, the headlines are insane. The video is crazy. The New York Times reports on May 11th, all along the nearly 2,000-mile border with Mexico, U.S. border agents, soldiers, and local officials were striving to maintain order on Thursday as migrants waded across the Rio Grande, lined up at international bridges, filled federal immigration processing centers, and huddled on the sidewalks of American border towns. The tension was prompted by the imminent lifting of a COVID-era policy known as Title 42 that for more than three years has allowed the government to swiftly expel many people who crossed the border before they could apply for asylum. The order was set to expire along with the national COVID health emergency at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. The day before, NBC News headline, Biden administration to allow for the release of some migrants into the U.S. with no way to track them. Is that not definitionally political malpractice, if not policy malpractice? 
It's absolutely terrible headlines. And is it going to fuel new terrible headlines in the coming days and weeks? Absolutely. But it's hard to argue that President Biden has the tools that he needs in order to restrict this influx of migrants. But isn't um, that part of his job? I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify. I know Congress has to be involved. I know yeah, that- It's that, that 60 votes again in I, the Senate, Chris. I, I know. I know. There's that. But there is the sense that a president has the opportunity to lead. And he's had two years. You just went through and talked about all of the issues that Trump has taken a point of view on that go completely against the majority of Americans. You've defined that this is a battle, once again, for the suburbs. You identified how Republicans are just boxing themselves in on abortion. And it's almost like Biden is giving a it's not exactly a get out of jail free card, but he's, he's intentionally fouling them and giving them free throws. Will Biden be hurt politically by this? Absolutely. He's president of the United States. He's in control of the, you know, the border patrol. So this will come back to bite him. But at the same time, you do have to realize that if he's not given the tools in order to handle this, and you've got an opposing party, you've got Republicans who are willing to politicize immigration because they believe it's their ticket back to controlling the U.S. Senate, keeping control of the House, and maybe the presidency. Well, obviously, Donald Trump believes that this issue could help him win back the presidency. So yeah, will it hurt Biden? Absolutely. So the way that you framed this, I liked, Chris, was abortion against immigration. Two very big issues where, you know, the Republicans seem to have the edge on the immigration issue. Democrats have the edge on the abortion rights issue. We'll see which one matters more as we move towards 2024. It's a very interesting way to frame it. Appreciate that. That's uh, two solids you've done me in this conversation. Let me ask you one more question, though, on the Biden not having the tools. He's sending 1,500 troops down to the border. First of all, is that good? Because I remember many of us being outraged that Trump was sending troops down to the border or threatening to send troops or whatever exactly it was. You'll correct me on the facts there. So first, I remember that. Second, is that not a tool that he has? And so if so, is that the right tool for him to be using? Yeah. So the facts are the Trump administration sent 5,000 troops to the border. Biden is sending 1,500 troops to the border. But the reality is, is that U.S. troops cannot act as police on the U.S. soil. And so they are essentially down there doing paperwork. They are essentially just as support staff. They're not able to arrest migrants. They're not able to put them in jails, put them in detention camps, anything like this. They're simply helping process. So while it may sound like a good headline that you're sending troops down to the border in order to deal with this influx of migrants, is it some help? Of course, it's some help. And the Trump administration thought so, and now the Biden administration thinks so. But it's not going to solve the problem. The problem is much, much bigger than this. And the problem, I mean, both sides recognize there's a problem. They don't agree on the solution. But it's like I said, it's like that infrastructure thing that we dealt with for 30 years trying to fund our infrastructure. There just has to be a moment, a tipping point where all of a sudden a deal can be done. And right now I can guarantee you there's no tipping point in sight. So this is a problem that will continue through the 2024 campaign into the election, and perhaps it will be decisive. We'll see. Is it a bigger problem than, let's say, George Santos has right now? <laughs> 
George what? Santos has a lot of problems right now. I mean, he's got 13 criminal charges against him. And since I've counted up all the different things I've read about crimes that he's committed, I suspect there are going to be more filed soon. What kind of a week is it when we're having a conversation on big political news of the week and we have to just shoehorn George Santos in at the end as an afterthought? Remarkable. Sitting member of Congress charged with 13 criminal counts passport taken away, travel limited, $500,000 bond. I mean, George Santos is in a heap of trouble. Yeah, but what about uh, Anthony DeVolder? Is that is that then his name? That is the other way of referring yeah. to George Santos. And we're not even sure that they actually have the right George Santos. I mean, I, I've heard that they did take a mugshot, so maybe it's him. But based on the stories, I don't think anybody can be sure. I mean, I, I know, you know, you said to me earlier this week, yeah, bad day for George Santos, but Anthony DeVolder, he, he might be doing just fine. Well, and Kevin McCarthy seems intent on keeping that Republican vote as long as he can get it. You know, he's dancing around this idea. A lot of his caucus does not like George Santos. They think he's a distraction. A lot of the Republican congressmen in New York do not like George Santos. They think that he harms their reelection chances. So they would like nothing more than to have Santos resign or be expelled. McCarthy only has a five-vote margin right now, and he's trying to keep that vote. You'll remember that George Santos, it was George Santos's vote that was the tiebreaker on the House passing their debt ceiling bill the other day. So, you know, had George Santos not been there, maybe that thing wouldn't have passed. And to bring this back to the battle for the suburbs, Santos represents an important suburb in Long Island. If that flips back to the Democrats, that just heightens the battle that we're talking about. Well, in the former congressman in that district, Tom Swazi, who left his seat to run for governor in New York in the Democratic primary, Swazi says he wants to potentially run for that seat again. So while there's already another Republican candidate who has announced Tom Swazi, a moderate Democrat running in a district that was won by George Santos, probably a pretty good bet to take that seat. The interesting thing will be, will it be in a special election or will Santos survive somehow through the 2024 elections in November? That's the interesting thing. The good thing is that either way, we will get to talk about George Santos. We won't have to just shoehorn him in at the end of the conversation. Talk to you soon, Tegan. See you, Chris.